for tuning into What Are We Reading? Presented by the SU English Ambassadors. Enjoy! Hi, these are your hosts. I am Sophia. Hi, I'm Sam. Um, this is cool. This is like our first episode. Uh, yeah, it's very exciting. Hopefully yeah. smooth sailing from here. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> um, <laughs> so this podcast was an idea we had uh, in the midst of the English Ambassadors program at Syracuse University. I think we should maybe like just give a gist of ourselves. Uh, would you like to start, Sophia? Yeah, sure. As I said, my name is Sophia. I'm a senior at Syracuse University. I study English, of course, Mm -hmm. and I also am a major in the history department. I'm in the creative writing track at the English department. Uh, Besides school, I guess, I've been involved with the food specialist program and planning for race, space, and environment symposiums and things like that. Very excited to be here. Really looking forward to it. I was very excited about the podcast idea mm-hmm. and very excited to do this with Sam, who will yeah. take it away. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll quickly introduce myself. Um, I'm Sam. Um, I am a uh, sophomore. Um, I'm an English and television radio film major. Um, so I'm on a uh, screenwriting track over at uh, Newhouse and a film studies track here in the English program. And besides that, uh, I do, I write in a couple uh, comedy groups um, on campus. How could I totally forget what I do on campus? I also, okay, <laughs> I also host a, uh, a radio show for our network on campus, WERW. And I also write for, I'm a staff writer for uh, Outcrowd Magazine, an LGBTQ plus publication uh, that resurrected itself last year on campus. And now we have over a hundred members which is really cool and exciting. Yeah, so we had had to start the year in 2020 in the midst of the pandemic. We had about five guaranteed to start. um, And then we got to about 15 people that would really commit to the whole thing. Um, And now we're at like 130, which is such a- Wow, we love to see it. It's incredible, yeah. Um, So I, my question for you, Sophie, is like, as, an English major, what has been the part about the English program that has surprised you the most? What have you been like, wow, this is really cool. I did not expect this being an English major, um, especially considering you're on the creative writing track. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's such a good question. I'd have to say, and I know this is kind of cheesy, but like the English department, I think just stays winning in terms of community. Mm -hmm. Um, the department I think is sort of a perfect size for getting to know like everyone kind of in your major and the professors are super supportive and there's always an opportunity in the English department if you're looking for one to get involved. Um, I've volunteered for a couple of things with the English department and um, they do like different internships if you're into journalism and we have like a lot of overlap with um, uh, TRF and Newhouse um, kids. And so there's opportunities in that sort of space. There's also opportunities with like tutoring and teaching with the School of Education and programs um, at uh, the Northside Learning Center at Syracuse where you sort of get to know the local community. And it's just like a really kind of amazing and unexpected sort of community that I think I've had a great experience with with the English department. 
Um, and that's, that was really unexpected because I guess, you know, it's sort of like, oh, I read <laughs> and you don't think you really get the opportunity to meet so many cool and interesting people. But that's definitely been up there. And as for the creative writing track, I mean, of course, the faculty for the English department is insanely good at what they do. And it's been a real sort of privilege to um, get to learn from some of the... I think really like just the best sort of writers and supportive writers that are sort of around right now, writing books and mm -hmm. poetry and all sorts of really cool and interesting things. I have to ask like, same question, man. Like how do, how are you feeling about that, that English major experience? I mean, we're both at kind of a different place in our mm -hmm. um, academic career. So as a sophomore. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a, the liberal arts core requirement has I'm trying to get that fulfilled right now. And so because of that, I've, I've only been able to take a couple English classes so far. Um, that being said, I think what I really appreciated about this program so much is that I thought for sure I'd have to take like a bunch of these boring, classically stereotypical English courses to, you know, to, to your prerequisites before you get to take the fun stuff. And the first class that I took as a major was interpretation of film uh, with Professor Scheibel. And that was a English class that just totally opened my eyes to the expansive world that an English major can be. It doesn't have to be just reading uh, books from artists, you, uh, for books from authors you really don't care about. It's, you could, movies, it's art, it's writing, it's, but not just, you know, the classic essay writing. This, you could celebrate the creative writing, you could celebrate all these incredible things. I just love how diverse and how diverse the topics are that you cover in this program. It's been, I've, I mean, I've taken English 154, English 242, even in English 242, which is our kind of, that is our uh, class that every English major has to take. It still was so, the subjects we covered in that, we, we've read a graphic novel. I mean, I wouldn't expect that in a, class that you feel like you have to take um so uh yeah it was a really it, it's been such a good start so far um and, oh absolutely yeah wow. it's been really cool um, what's like the weirdest thing you've written about the weirdest thing i've written about <sighs> <laughs> i like to ask because sometimes people say the craziest thing like um i don't even know if this can go on the podcast but i have a friend who wrote like an analysis on WAP. <laughs> <laughs> so you know <laughs> i mean that is it to be fair there is a lot of lyrical depth there we got range in the english department they're not it's it's a really <laughs> well-written song like it is super good um the the craziest thing i've written about i've really written only academic papers um so far i will say the thing the craziest thing i've been able to submit for a final was um i uh, for my english 242 class we kind of had all creative will to create a final based on anything about the subject material and i was able to like create a film on my iphone and just go out one day and film it just on a whim it was that was probably the coolest um thing just uh, and definitely the most surprising and shocking just to be able to be like oh for your final you don't have to write some really in-depth analysis you can be super creative with it which for that 
introductory course was super cool, really fun note to kind of finish off of. What would you say the craziest thing you've written about? Oh, man. <laughs> I think it's been a while since I've written on a novel at this point. Um, I think, the, well, the most recent thing I wrote about was the Red re-release from Taylor mm. Swift. Yeah. And also, to be clear, these are all academic, like, these are critical analyses, if mm -hmm. you will, which is kind of super, um, it's super fun. I mean, it's very much like, I think I've learned through the English department that creative work and like analytical or like critical work are not like the binary that sort of is enforced. Like they're both definitely skills that work together to produce really interesting work. But yeah. yeah. What was the analysis that you did? Was it for the Red Album, was there a specific song you covered? Did you do the all too um, well 10 minute I, version? Like what was the- I basically, that's a great question. Um, it was a parody of Lauren Berlant's, um, there was a secondary author, I think Michael Warner. Um, they wrote a paper called Sex in Public and I did a parody of the comments on that, but through the lenses of um, viewing Taylor Swift as an institution of intimacy in and of her, like, herself. So it was a silly little paper, <laughs> just like um, just one example of just sort of what what weird little things people let you write about in the English department. I don't know how you necessarily transition from Taylor Swift's version of Red to banned books. Great to kind of transition we'll it right to, <laughs> to a banned books reading. Yeah. Um, so you were able to go to that event, correct? Yes, it was really great. Um, basically, the Band Books is um, anniversary. It's sort of an annual event nationally. Like it's not just in in the English department here at SU, but it's a day where people sort of celebrate and acknowledge just in in many ways like the power of literature that we can go as far as like having books and works and just like these little words that people put together in such a way that they threaten social orders. They put, they make it feel like we're putting the future at risk, children, the society is collapsing if we let people read these books. And so there's a very long history of these books that have been censored over time. Everything from Fahrenheit 451 to the Bible to Twilight. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And it sort of celebrates um, intellectual freedom in the sense that, of course, all of these books are uh, really interesting and worthy of our time and attention in their own right. But of course, they also tackle subjects that make people feel really uncomfortable or um, make sort of the social norms um, sort of threaten those kind of institutions. And the English department, as part of our celebration of it, hosted this reading on the quad. Um, it was outside and professors and students from the English department and associated departments um, would read snippets from a band book that they really liked or thought we should be thinking about. And uh, we all read and it was very fun. Yeah, so the band books, um, event that we did at Syracuse happened on September 28th. And we were lucky enough to get recordings of some of the readers. Um, hopefully the audio is okay, of course, because uh, it was taken outside, but we have that to show you now for as part of our inaugural, um, we can call it a late Halloween spooky podcast <laughs> special of our recording for the Band Books event. I dared not offer her a second helping of the drug. 
and had not abandoned hope that the first might still consolidate her sleep. I started to move toward her, ready for any disappointment, knowing I had better wait, but incapable of waiting. My pillow smelled of her hair. I moved toward my glimmering darling, stopping or retreating every time I thought she stirred or was about to stir. A breeze from Wonderland had begun to affect my thoughts, and now they seemed couched in italics, as if the surface reflecting them were wrinkled by the phantasm of that breeze. Time and again, my consciousness folded the wrong way. My shuffling body entered the sphere of sleep, shuffled out again, and once or twice, I caught myself drifting into a melancholy snore. Mists of tenderness enfolded the mountains of longing. Now and then, it seemed to me that the enchanted prey was about to meet halfway the enchanted hunter, that her haunch was working its way toward me under the soft stand, sand of a remote and fabulous beach, and then her dimpled dimness would stir. Behind her, bending down, his body an arc of kindness, he held her breasts in the palms of his hands. He rubbed his cheek on her back and learned that way her sorrow, the roots of it, its wide trunk and intricate branches. Raising his fingers to the hooks of her dress, he knew without seeing them or hearing any sigh that tears were coming fast. And when the top of her dress was around her hips and he saw the sculpture her back had become, like the decorative work of an ironsmith too passionate for display, he could, he could think but not say, oh, Lord, girl, and he would tolerate no peace until he touched every ridge and leaf of it with his mouth, none of which Setha could feel because her back skin had been dead for years. What she knew was that the responsibility for her breasts at last was in somebody else's hands. It had occurred to Pecola some time ago that if her eyes, those eyes that held the pictures and knew the sights, if those eyes of hers were different, that is to say beautiful, she herself would be different. Her teeth were good, and at least her nose was not big and flat like some of those who were t thought so cute. If she looked different, beautiful, maybe Collie would be different, and Mrs. Breedlove too. Maybe they'd say, why look at pretty-eyed Pecola? We mustn't do bad things in front of those pretty eyes. This is the place in which it seems to me most white Americans find themselves, impaled. They are dimly or vividly aware that the history they have fed themselves is mainly a lie, but they did not know how to release themselves from it, and they suffer enormously from the resulting personal incoherence. This incoherence is heard nowhere more plainly than in those stammering, terrified dialogues which white Americans sometimes entertain with that black conscience, the black man in America. The nature of this stammering can be reduced to a plea. Do not blame me. I was not there. I did not do it. My history has nothing to do with Europe or the slave trade. Anyway, it was your chiefs who sold you to me. I was not present on the Middle Passage. I am not responsible for the textile mills of Manchester or the cotton fields of Mississippi. Besides, consider how the English, too, suffered in those mills and in those awful cities. I also despise the governors of southern states and the sheriffs of southern counties. And I also want your child to have a decent education and rise as high as his capabilities will permit. I have nothing against you, nothing. What have you got against me? War is only a word so far as you are concerned. 
it is time for you to gather some idea of what power means. The first thing you must realize is that power is collective. The individual only has power insofar as he ceases to be an individual. You know the party slogan, freedom is slavery. Has it ever occurred to you that it is reversible? Slavery is freedom. Alone, free, the human being is always defeated. It must be so because every human being is doomed to die, which is the greatest of all failures. But if he can make complete, utter submission, if he can escape from his identity, if he can merge himself in the party so that he is the party, then he is all-powerful and immortal. Will you tell me something, he asked, glancing down at me with a slight smile. Don't I always? Just promise you'll tell me, he insisted, grinning. I knew I was going to regret this almost instantly. Fine. You seemed honestly surprised when you figured out that I was taking you here, he began. I was, I interjected. Exactly, he agreed, but you must have had some other theory, dot, dot, dot. I'm curious. What did you think I was dressing you up for? Yes, instant regret. I pursed my lips, hesitating. I don't want to tell you. You promised, he objected. <laughs> I know. What's the problem? I knew he thought it was mere embarrassment holding me back. I think it will make you mad or sad. His brows pulled together over his eyes as he thought that through. I still want to know, please. I sighed. He waited. Well, I assumed it was some kind of occasion, but I didn't think it would be some trite human thing. Prom, I scoffed. Human, he said flatly. He'd picked up on the key word. I looked down at my dress, fidgeting with a stray piece of chiffon. He waited in silence. Okay, I confessed in a rush. So I was hoping that you might have changed your mind, that you were going to change me after all. A dozen emotions played across his face. Some I recognized, anger, pain. <laughs> and then he seemed to collect himself and his expression became amused. You thought, that, you thought that would be a black tie occasion, did you? So like him changing her into a vampire. He teased, touching the lapel of his tuxedo jacket. I scowled to hide my embarrassment. I don't know how these things work. To me, at least, it seems more rational than prom does. He was still grinning. It's not funny, I said. No, you're right, it's not, he agreed, his smile fading. I'd rather treat it as a joke, though, than believe you're serious. But I am serious. He sighed deeply. I know, and you're really that willing? The pain was back in his eyes. I bit my lip and nodded. So ready for this to be the end, he murmured, almost to himself. For this to be the twilight of your life, though your life has barely started. <laughs> For a man with such large hands, my father fidgeted with delicate things. A loose thread on his jacket, a twirling match, the tiniest clasps. He had the touch of a young girl's nimble fingers. I watched him sew a minuscule button on my dress once and later unfasten a prostitute's black mask. My father had been a handsome man. I have the picture to prove it. It was Mama who destroyed him. Now his nails are embedded with grime in his face and neck are the texture of cured hides. He owns one shirt, polka-dotted, which he wears rolled up to his elbows and a greasy pair of trousers too long in the seat. The lines in his face look as if each one were put there by a distinct calamity rather than a slow accumulation of sorrow. His teeth are blackened and ground down with worry, and he eats only mashed foods like a baby. He keeps his wedding ring in a blue velvet box with tight springs. 
I remember how he used to slip the ring on and off his finger easily as if it were greased, and the things he did when it was off didn't count. My father was a man who could not turn down an adventure. After Mama set him on fire, we knew Papi wouldn't return. In fact, we didn't see him again for nine years, but I fantasized about how he'd come back to take Milagro and me away from Mama and her coconuts. We kept the scarves he'd brought us from back from China when we were two years old, silks with the graceful patterns of cranes. It didn't matter that we were too young to wear them, only that he thought we could. The visitor from outer space made a serious study of Christianity to learn, if he could, why Christians found it so easy to be cruel. He concluded that at least part of the trouble was slipshod storytelling in the New Testament. He supposed that the intent of the Gospels was to teach people, among other things, to be merciful, even to the lowest of the low. But the Gospels actually taught this. Before you kill somebody, make absolutely sure he isn't well-connected. So it goes. The flaw in the Christ stories, said the visitor from outer space, was that Christ, who didn't look like much, was actually the son of the most powerful being in the universe. Readers understood that, so when they came to the crucifixion, they naturally thought, and Rosewater read out loud again, oh boy, they sure picked the wrong guy to lynch that time. And that thought had a brother. There are right people to lynch. Who? People not well connected. So it goes. It was really good. Like, what was your favorite uh, band book um, that was read? Uh, oh, that's a great question. <laughs> um, I guess in, I had two probably very different answers. Mm -hmm. One of them, of course, being um, Alex O'Connell and her reading of the Twilight Saga, because I feel like that's a great just reminder that we ban books all the time and sometimes it's not that deep. <laughs> like it's just, uh, it was sort of a real cultural phenomenon and I'm glad that she brought that energy into the space. Um, but on a completely sort of different tone, another one that I really enjoyed was the reading from um, James Baldwin books because of course there's all of this current discussion in the world in general about the phrase critical race theory, which is being thrown around by basically everyone on earth <laughs> in positions of power trying to decide, oh, what we should be allowed to teach um, and educate when I think even that term is so, so much more complicated than the way it's being used. And um, the readings from James Baldwin and the Toni Morrison readings from the band Bookstay, I think really, reminded me that these are not new conversations. We sort of changed the language and the parameters and the frameworks of how we want to discuss um, and tackle questions of race in American education system and how we want to expose kids to those topics. And there's always, there's always been a long history of people trying to make um, these conversations go away as if the problem goes away, if we don't talk about them. And, sort of in that sense, this event was really meaningful to me to listen to so many people um, and to witness so many people sharing and participating in this larger conversation that I think society has been having for a very long time and putting their sort of, um, their foot forward in celebrating the, the works um, that have fought for their right to 
sort of participate in these conversations about race as well. For our next segment, Sam has luckily had the opportunity to interview one of our great, great professors in the English department. And I'm really looking forward to hearing what he has to say about it. Yeah, so um, I interviewed uh, Professor Scheibel. Um, he is kind of the head of the films uh, and screen studies concentration um, within the English major. Um, we, I interviewed him uh, for the newsletter and the podcast, at doing an interview with the central thesis of w why all English majors should be screenwriters. And we answered that question, um, which is good. Uh, we also talked about a bunch of other things, a bunch of other mediums and just how English, studying English in general, isn't just great for screenwriters, but if you're a director, producer, whatever, English is such a great route for that. Um, so yeah, here's my interview with Professor Scheibel. What makes a good screenplay in your mind? That's a, that's a, that's a good question and a tough question. Um, something that um, is flexible enough to accommodate the visions of other artists. Um, so it's a screen, you know, to me, a good screenplay is something where not everything is in the screenplay. Um, that, it, you know, it's something that's flexible enough that um, it allows for directors to kind of adapt that work visually. Um, that kind of leaves um, room for directors to play with, with the work creatively in terms of the, the distinct um, job of a director, which is not to write, but to kind of compose um, images. Um, to write um, great scenes um, for actors. Uh, imagine that, you know, it, it, it would be a totally different experience to see and hear these lines performed on screen rather than just reading it. You know, a screenplay should be different to me than, than, um, than a novel uh, where you're just reading dialogue on, on the page. So um, something that has interesting dialogue, but, but also um, accommodates um, the creative uh, contributions of actors. Um, to me, some of my favorite screenplays um, and some of my favorite screenwriters are those that um, think about the actor. You can, you can tell that, that um, the, the writer is thinking about either spe very specific actors and that the roles are written for specific actors um, or um, they, they're writing with, with actors in mind rather than just the story itself. Um, a screenplay shouldn't just be plot information. It shouldn't just be, um, you know, data that you as the viewer are kind of processing. It, it should be um, something that, that is literate, both at the level of, of um, the dialogue and how the story is told, um, but also um, is uh, thinking about how this is going to translate to the screen. Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to just sort of a, a written text that somebody reads individually. And so do you have any examples in your mind of like screenplays that hit those marks really well? Screenplays that are thinking about the actors, thinking about directors, leave space for everyone to kind of have their own creative interpretation? Yeah, um, so the first example that comes to mind is um, the screenwriter John Logan, um, who wrote the screenplays for... Um, two of the recent James Bond movies, Skyfall and um, Spectre. He kind of um, established his reputation in the early 2000s um, 
with uh, the movie Gladiator. Um, but his background's in theater. So he thinks about actors and um, his process is as a writer, writing great scenes for actors. Um, and that doesn't mean that he's a bad storyteller. I actually think he's a, um, a really fine storyteller. But to me, what, what makes a John Logan script recognizable is um, the, the sound of the dialogue. And um, there's a the kind of poetry to the dialogue and kind of bringing his background in theater to bear on um, uh, film and television where you're, um, you know, you're, you're kind of creating great opportunities for certain types of actors to perform. Um, and the reason I'm thinking of him in particular, there are other examples, but he comes to mind first is um, I'm working on the TV show Penny Dreadful right now. It was a show that ran for three seasons and it ended um, 2016, I believe. Sort of a reimagining of uh, Victorian monsters, uh, Frankenstein's monster, um, Dorian Gray, Dracula, um, and um, I'm, I'm working on an edited collection, a, a, an anthology of essays about the show. And I think for me, what first sucked me into that show is um, the, and I didn't really know much about John Logan prior to that, but the, the great way that he imagined this work being performed as opposed to just either read or the script as just a transmission of plot information, um, that he's thinking of this as something that is going to be enacted for an audience. When did you start uh, writing Penny Dreadful uh, uh, essays? When did that really spark your interest as something you wanted to do an anthology of essays about? Um, so that was fairly that was fairly recent as a as a a, a kind of scholarly project. Um, uh, I, I've written on other things, you know, I, I've written on um, uh, Twin Peaks, the, the TV show Twin Peaks. Um, my, my main kind of gig is writing about um, classical Hollywood cinema. Uh, TV is, is a somewhat secondary um, interest, um, but uh, when, a, you know, when a show um, really kind of hits on multiple things that I'm thinking about at a given moment, um, it becomes something I consider as a, a topic for, um, for research. So uh, it was kind of a COVID thing. Like um, I had just finished my book on Twin Peaks. It, it, it came out right before the COVID lockdown, um, like literally a month before um, the, the, the lockdown in Syracuse. Mm -hmm. And um, I co-wrote that with a, a colleague at Lemoyne. And um, so we were still kind of mentally in that world of, of Twin Peaks and, and writing about kind of weird TV shows. Mm -hmm. And um, there was a kind of absence that uh, Twin Peaks left um, after we were done with that project and after the mm -hmm. show was over. So, um, you know, like most people during COVID, um, I was, you know, looking for the next thing to become obsessed with, like the next media thing to become obsessed with. And so um, they had the whole... Uh, the whole three seasons of Penny Dreadful on Netflix. And so um, my wife and I just started watching it just to, you know, just to watch something uh, uh, during COVID. And we both just completely fell in love with the show. And then my, my co-author at Lemoyne, I, I recommended it to her because she's written about monsters and literature and adaptation. And, and she fell in love with it. it. It kind of went from there. Like it was hitting on so many things that I'm interested in. Um, uh, performance, genre, um, uh, seriality. And so uh, it just seemed like, you know, it would easily translate from something I was just kind of personally interested in as a viewer to um, something that might be interesting critically. 
How much emphasis do you put on like reading, analyzing screenplays, or do you focus on particular screenplays and movies in any of these classes? So I don't assign screenplays for students to read. Um, we don't look at, well, I'm not opposed to that. That might be something um, to think about for a future class. Um, I, I like that idea. I think there's a lot of value in just reading a screenplay as, um, as its own um, text, um, but we've never done that. Um, uh, so um, I don't so much look at the screenplay as the primary object of study, um, but we will talk about things like narrative, um, you know, which comes from, in part, in large part, from, um, from the script. Um, we'll talk about, like in, in ENG 154, um, the difference between plot and story, um, character types. Um, you know, we might look at recurring um, motifs or recurring themes of a particular writer. Um, you know, some of the classes I've taught have focused on authorship, issues of authorship. And so we might um, look at a, a particular um, example of um, somebody who's a writer and a director and, you know, different ideas that they've worked out, you know, over the course of, of multiple films. So the screenplay for me is, is sort of part of the holistic picture that is the film text in, in my classes. And so, um, uh, you know, it, it, um, it's one element that, that we address um, in terms of um, what makes a film a film and how films produce meaning. Um, that, you know, it's not just the intentions of one particular artist, it's, you know, kind of collaboration of different artists working in different media. For example, a cinematographer is working with um, the camera, the screenwriter is working with the, um, the, the script um, and how those things come together to produce um, meaning and sometimes a kind of complicated contradictory meaning that, that we might see kind of competing uh, visions in, in a single film. Mm -hmm. Um, and have the, any of the, the, these discussions about narratives and motifs, have they inspired any of your students, undergrad, graduate, um, to make their own screenplays or make yep. things studying screenplays or whatnot? Absolutely. Um, I would say at least 50% of my undergraduate students um, are taking film classes because they want to work creatively with film in some way. Some of them come from um, the English department. A lot of them come from um, Newhouse, um, they're TRF majors, or they come from um, VPA, Visual Performing Arts, um, either from the Transmedia um, Department or um, Communication and Rhetorical Studies. Um, so it's a very interdisciplinary group of students. Um, and uh, what, what sort of is the common ground with all of them, despite their different uh, trainings and, and different emphasis is um, a genuine interest in uh, thinking about films critically, even if they see themselves as creative types. Um, you know, not all of them want to be necessarily film critics or academics, although some of them do, and some of them sort of have a foot in both of those worlds of, of creative and critical practice. But, um, I would say what links, not all, but most of my students is an interest in thinking about films critically to become better um, or more, more interesting 
writers, uh, uh, directors, cinematographers, um, you know, the, the creative students in my class, um, some of them are interested in screenwriting, others um, interested in, in cinematography, um, some interested in, in acting. Um, uh, but what's nice is that uh, the students I get tend to not view creative and critical practice as mutually exclusive, that they're, they're mutually informing. Um, so, um, you know, I, I often in my upper division classes, instead of giving a final exam, I'll um, just have the last week dedicated to creative presentations where I'll have students, um, you know, focus on a particular topic that we learned about in the class. Um, at, for example, this semester I'm teaching a class on film noir mm -hmm. and um, the last two weeks are set aside for creative projects and the students can take um, uh, like an idea that we talked about in class, like say representations of the city in film noir and um, put together their own creative work that demonstrates something that they learned in the class um, through a medium of their choice. So um, I might have a student, um, uh, like let's say they're a photography major, they may um, take photographs of Syracuse at night and kind of shoot in a sort of noir style way or um, what uh, always happens every semester is there's always a handful of students that will want to make their own uh, film, in this case, maybe their own kind of noir-esque film, or write uh, a screenplay. And so um, when they uh, present that to the class, they either show the film or sort of read selections of the screenplay, and then I'll, I'll read the, the whole thing at the end. So it's clear that um, screenwriting is, that, that's something I can always expect, is that uh, there will be a, you know, a, a pocket of students in, in every semester that are specifically interested in, in screenwriting. What would you say, because a lot of Newhouse students go straight from college into the workforce. Um, uh -huh. so having an English background for screenwriters, having an English background improves their screenwriting, improves their work. If you think about the some of the most interesting filmmakers that are, are working today, people like Martin Scorsese, um, Spike Lee, Catherine Bigelow, Todd Haynes, um, they're all very cine savvy. Um, they're all very cine literate. They know a lot about movies. And um, I, I mean, just to use one, one example of one of, of a recent film by one of those people, um, I don't know if you saw Spike Lee's To Five Bloods, um, which I is have on not. No. Um, really, really interesting film. Um, it's it's um, uh, in, in some ways, I think you could interpret it as a remake of the old Humphrey Bogart movie, Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Um, so a lot of these uh, filmmakers that um, students admire uh, today, the people that, that I admire, um, are engaging in a dialogue with the films that came before them. Um, you know, that it, they're not, uh, I wouldn't um, call any of those people that I just mentioned imitators you know it's not it's not that they're recycling these old movies but um they're they're kind of adapting them they're um uh they're influenced by them but also kind of pushing some of those ideas in different directions or um kind of combining um different styles of of older films that they that they like um to create their own style um so um i think one of the best ways to become a, a better screenwriter is just to watch as many movies as you can and to learn about um, 
you know, film history and um, the, the conditions under which those films were made and, and the, the careers of, of um, film artists. And you would learn that um, in an English department that does film studies. Um, you know, even though we don't teach filmmaking proper, um, you know, in the film and screen studies track in, in our department, there are other English departments in the, in the country that are like this. Um, you know, you learn about the history of films. You learn how to interpret films. Um, and that uh, is true of, of um, the critical literary studies side of the department. They don't focus on films, but they focus on, on literary text. So whether you're studying film or whether you're studying um, literature, you're studying the history um, of, of texts and how to interpret them. And to me, if you're gonna be a screenwriter, being able to think critically about narratives, about material objects, forms of communication, artistic works, um, that's just gonna make you a more interesting and more informed screenwriter. Um, if for no other reason, then you're learning how to be self-reflexive about your own writing. Um, a screenplay is um, you know, a form of communication. It is um, uh, a, a, a text in its own right and it will become part of another text. Um, so um, not only are you gonna learn about the, the content of films and the, and the content of film history, but you're gonna learn about um, textual production and textual reception and, and um, how to interpret meaning from texts. And um, I think that can only help somebody as, as a, um, a filmmaker, you know, I, I think it's really important to know the technical stuff, um, which you'll learn in a kind of production-based program like TRF. Um, but I, I also think um, it's, it's just as important to, um, uh, you know, to think about how your uh, work fits within larger artistic traditions and um, um, to be able to kind of critique your work, um, analyze your work um, yourself as you're, as you're creating it. Is there any uh, particular moment as a teacher where you saw the growth of uh, writing skills of your student? Like, is there a particular story that comes to mind when I say your classes help someone become a better screenwriter or a uh, better writer in general? Is there a particular story or moment that you're like, oh, here's how I'd answer that question? To my knowledge, I don't know of any students that have taken my classes that are now working in screenwriting, but that's often just because they, they may be, and I just don't know that, um, you know, that's often just because it's hard to keep in touch with students, you know, after they graduate, they, um, they go on to, um, to, to bigger and better things. And, and, you know, they, they sometimes lose contact with us. So uh, of the students that I've stayed in contact with, um, I, I'm, no one is coming to mind that um, right now that um, that has written a screenplay that, that uh, people, that your readers would, would recognize. Um, I, I have had students that go into filmmaking um, and some, some aspect of filmmaking, like, you know, I'll, right before they graduate, they'll tell me, you know, I'm moving to LA or they'll send me an email, you know, a few, months after or even, you know, a couple of years after they graduate and say, you know, oh, I'm working on a film. Um, uh, I just had somebody email me the other day um, who said that they're, um, uh, they're working on a, on a film. Um, there are people that go into to screenwriting and to filmmaking, um, but 
I don't, I don't often know what happens to those projects. And, and I don't know um, if, I, I certainly don't think uh, as I'm reading those emails or, or hearing from students, I'm not thinking, oh, well, I, I, I had something to do with that. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I just, um, that's just not how my, you know, if somebody says, I really enjoyed your class or I learned a lot, that makes me feel good. But if somebody's doing something that's really cool. I, I, I'm usually not thinking like, oh, it, ha it had to be from, from, from my class. I mean, that's probably a, a, a students that have taken my classes could probably answer that question better than, than, than me right now. Um, in terms of just seeing the growth of students, yeah, that happens all the time. Um, you know, uh, the, the, the primary assignments in my classes, as, as you know, are not um, screenplays, they're, they're critical papers. Um, you know, I, I often will see, especially in my upper division classes where I work more closely with the students, um, you know, great improvement from the first paper to the second paper, or, um, you know, when students will take multiple classes with me, um, you know, I'll, I'll see a real kind of arc of improvement there where if somebody's taking like three classes with me, I'll think back like when I'm writing a letter of recommendation or something and I'll, I'll think back to like the first class they had with me and then the last class they had with me and as I'm going back and looking at their old papers when I'm writing my letters, I'm like, wow, you know, there really is tremendous improvement in terms of more specific thesis statements, um, more detail in the uh, kind of textual analysis, um, greater depth of research. Um, so, yeah, I, no one student per se comes to mind uh, only because that is a, um, a sort of usual thing that I, I notice when, um, when I'm um, working with students kind of consistently like that over, over multiple mm -hmm. classes is, um, you know, writing is kind of like, like anything, you know, the more you do it, the, the better you get. Um, so I think, you know, how do you be a, uh, how do you become a better writer? One, read as much as you can, um, not only, fiction, but also critical writing. Um, watch as many movies as you can and write as much as you can. I think just doing it is gonna make you a better writer. And, and being in an English major, you kind of, you know, you have to do that for the class is to, to read a lot, to watch a lot, to write a lot. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Sam. It was really a great opportunity to get to know um, one of the prof professors here at the English department and yourself and sort of the benefits of the English degree. Um, for our next and I believe final segment of this podcast episode, we want to share some quick uh, faculty news and publications that have either happened in the past year or just about to come out soon. Um, we're really excited and uh, look forward to seeing some of these works. So for sort of the creative writing track and the people who are really interested in the creative writing works from the English department, Dana Spiota has just released uh, earlier this year her latest novel, Wayward. Um, it's set around the time of the election of 2016, and it tells the story of a central New York woman who falls in love with a house here in Syracuse and runs away from her suburban life and family. And it deals with themes of female um, aging and body complexity and that sort of thing. Mona Awad's new, um, latest novel called All's Well follows the trials and tribulations of a theater professor as she struggles to stage Shakespeare's All's Well That Ends Well. And she has actually just joined the English department during the COVID-19 pandemic. And this is her first year teaching in residence at Syracuse. So we're really looking forward and we're very grateful to have her. 
Um, George Saunders' short story, The Mom of Bold Action, was featured in The New Yorker recently, and it tells a story about um, a children's book author and her son who was assaulted by a homeless man, and it considers themes of justice and family. And we also have a new um, poetry collection released by Jules Gibbs, and um, it includes poems which explore themes of self, alienation, mythology, dreams, and language. But um, of course, the creative writing sort of part of the English department is not all that is happening. And we are very lucky also to have work from Mike Good, who recently published um, Romantic Capabilities, Blake Scott, Austin, and the New Messages of Old Media, which models a new critical methodology by analyzing case studies that considers popular new media uses of literary texts. Chris Forrester is also releasing an upcoming book, Modernism and Its Media, which presents the first critical guide to the current academic conversations around changing media contexts of modernist writing, and it will be published this month, actually. So really looking forward to that. And of course, we also want to welcome our newest um, English department professors, Dalali Kumavi, Ethan Madarieta, and Chanel Benz, who have just joined this year, and we're really glad to have them. So that was a very quick run through. Obviously not everything that's happening at the English department, but uh, we look forward to hearing more and how all those projects uh, keep turning out. So over to you, Sam. <laughs> yeah, not to toot our own horn, but considering that's not everything we got going on, and oh, that's yeah. still a lot, we, we're kind of killing I mean, it You heard here. me, I was like losing my breath. There's yeah. so many things going on. <laughs> uh, with future classes, there were a lot of classes uh, this year, I was unfortunately only able to take one this semester. Um, however, I'm really excited for it. Queering Documentary um, with uh, Prof Professor Hallis. Um, just super excited to uh, look into that. Um, I wrote a piece about the uh, LGBTQ minor, and this is uh, one of the courses that the English program offers that intersects with that uh, minor. So I'm really excited to participate in it. Um, my what I'm really excited about is London. Hopefully, if everything goes according to plan, I'll be able to uh, study there in fall of 2022. And uh, I will be focusing on Shakespeare stuff. Uh, there's a specific wow. class out there. Yeah, there's a specific class out there where you read Shakespeare and then go to the Globe Theater to watch Shakespeare plays. Oh my um, goodness. Yeah, I was looking it up. I, I When I was doing my research for like things to do in the uh, classes to take in London, I saw that one. I was like, okay, well, obviously. That's very o cool. I, obviously. Was in London, I was in London for the spring 2020 when we got all sent home, but my English classes there were great too. Yeah. <laughs> and I know my English classes will be great next spring. So mm -hmm. I will be in Italy and there will also be very cool English classes offered there. I believe I'll be taking Tuscany through text. That's awesome. Which is very exciting. Yeah, that's yeah. really cool. Um, to kind of sign off, thank you guys for listening. Um, I'm Sam Balo. And I'm Sophia Frida. And thank you very much. Thank you.